Lord Jesus, we just come before you. We thank you, Lord, for this day that, that you've given us to just dive into your word. I thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given me. I pray, Lord, that it can not be my word speaking today, Lord, but it can just be all glory and honor and power to you. Lord, that we can just pour out your spirit today and we can just hear what you have for us and focus our hearts and our minds on you and just be prepared to, to walk in you in the coming week. So, Lord, I ask this all in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so do you guys remember those little circles in school? I think they were called Venn diagrams. Anyone remember those? Yeah? So, you know, the ones that had, you know, you put all your differences on one side, this guy's differences, this guy's differences, and then right smack dab in the middle was all of the similarities. I got a picture to show you real quick. That, aw, it's kind of big, but that's kind of what it looked like. So on the left side, you'd have all of the differences. The right side, you'd have all the other differences. And then in the middle, you'd have all the similarities. Well, today we're going to do just that. We're going to take a look at a few leaders, some good leaders, some bad leaders, then finally, Jesus. So how does the world define leaders? I have another picture of that. This is how the world defines leaders. You've got your boss on the top, and you've got your leader down at the bottom. You've got your mission statement, and the people are pulling the missions. The world defines it as the person who leads or commands a group, organization, or country. So I want you to think back. Did you ever have a boss that just wasn't that great? So when you think about that person, what comes to mind? This is the part where you tell me what comes to mind. Mean, prayer, micromanage. Maybe some things you can't shout out in the middle of church. Maybe it was a coworker who got promoted and stopped putting in the effort. Maybe it was just a lazy boss. Well, today, we're going to look at one example of a good boss. So turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah 5, 14 to 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. But the former governors who were before me laid upon burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from nations around us. Now, that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and, every, and once every ten days, our abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because of the bondage was heavy on his people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So in these verses, we see eight different qualities of leadership. 
Now, if you want a more in-depth study, I recommend you checking out Pastor Ed Taylor's from Calvary Aurora's study on it. He takes those verses and just goes into massive detail on them, and it's super, super awesome. Um, I'm going to kind of just give a little top-end overview of some of the things that he brought out in there, um, because it was a super blessing to me while I was going through it. So in verse 14, we see that Nehemiah led among the people. He says, neither I nor my brothers. He realized he was not over the people. He was not better than the people. He was with the people. He was of the people. Then, in verse 15, he relieved burdens. It says that even the former governor's servants bore rule over the people. So the servants of the, I'm going to repeat it again, because the servants of the governor were bearing rule over the people. That's how little respect that the former governors had for the people, the former leaders had for the people. And then Nehemiah continues on, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah acknowledged that he didn't need to. He didn't need to force respect on the people because of the actions that he did and the way that he served and the way that he lived. It was evident that he respected the people and he garnished their respect back. He trusted in God, kept his eyes focused on him, that he could relieve the pressure of ruling over them. And we find out in the next verses that he ruled with them. So in verse 16, he says, I also continued work on the wall. The I is what I want to draw attention to there. I also continued work on the wall. Nehemiah truly served. He was in the trenches. He was down there doing the dirty work. He wasn't just micromanaging at the top. He was right there with the people. Don't you love a boss who gets down in the trenches with you? Don't you love somebody who's willing to to do the work right along with you rather than just tell you what to do? A leader who's willing to get his or her hands dirty, it's pretty awesome. The next thing that Nehemiah did is he led with a true fear of God. He worried about the glory of God, and he didn't put his name on the project. So when he was putting the stones in the wall, because that's what he was doing, he was there building the wall around Jerusalem because it had been torn down years before. So when he was there, he didn't put his name on every stone. He didn't say, Nehemiah, laid this stone. Okay, we're going to put that here. Nehemiah laid this stone. We're going to put it here. He didn't do that. He led with, with the glory of God. The only reason he was doing what he was doing was to give glory to God. He led by example. We've talked about that a lot. Everything he did was as an example to other people so that they knew what a good leader looks like. So we know now what a good leader, what a good leader looks like. In verse 17, he was seeking good counsel. It's another sign of a good leader, somebody who's willing to hear and heed good counsel. He invited people to be around him. He was the governor. You couldn't just go up and sit down at his table. You had to be invited. And he had specifically, the verse says, we read that he had over 150 people, Jews and rulers from around the world that would eat with him. So he intentionally surrounded himself with good counsel. Take a look with me, with, if you will, to Proverbs 
It says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. He understood this verse. He understood what this meant to have a good counsel of people around him. He knew that it was wise to heed the advice of others. The next one, he led sacrificially. Back in verse 18, he says that he did not take the governor's provision or place of burden on the people. He did not buy any of the land. It was completely 100% within his rights to buy land and become one of the richest men in Jerusalem. Because these people, the, the Jews, were hurting. They were desperate. They were on falling on hard times. So him, his right as the governor and of the, the city is he could have just bought up the land for pennies on the dollar. And the people would have been temporarily you know, relieved of a burden. But in the long run, he understood that wouldn't have been good. It wouldn't have given glory to God for him to own the entire land of Jerusalem. So he did not take advantage of the desperation of the people. So verse 19, he led with eternity in mind. I think this is my, my favorite part of the whole study because he says, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for the people. He knew where his strength came from. He knew where his eyes needed to be. The reason why he did everything in the preceding chapter was not to give glory to himself. It was for God. So God would remember him when he went into heaven. He didn't do any of it for an earthly reward. He didn't even ask to be the governor. If you remember, a while back, before all of this, he was praying for a good four months of whether or not he was going to come back, was supposed to be the one to come back and start rebuilding this wall. So he kept eternity or his eternal reward at the forefront of his mind. All right, so let's contrast this with a bad leader in the Bible, shall we? I was thinking long and hard while writing this of a bad example of a leadership, and none immediately popped into my mind. I didn't just have like, oh, that's the person I'm going to preach on. So I kind of dug in, and I started doing some study and started doing some research. And through that research, the Lord made it clearly years, very clear. One of the worst examples of a leader I came across was, any guesses? bad leader in the Bible? Saul. Saul? Okay, that's a good one. I went with Jezebel. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I like it. She is such an example that people use her name as a descriptory noun. Is that even a word? It is now, but. So look with me, Revelation 2.20, and I'll show you that the Bible uses her name as a descriptory noun. Helps if I can get to the right verse too. Nevertheless, I have a few, thing against, few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexually immoral, sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So, Obviously, that wasn't the Jezebel, because this was written many, many years later. So even the Bible is using her name as something of what not to do, of a person of what not to be. So husbands, do you want to get in a lot of trouble with your wife? 
Call her a Jezebel. See what happens. All right, so in the book of First Kings, we're introduced to Queen Jezebel. And that's going to be First Kings 16, 31. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebal, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Esbal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Jezebel was a priestess of Baal. And Baal, if you recall, was the false god that required human sacrifices and oftentimes people killed babies to sacrifice to Baal to satisfy him. So they would go out and they'd live their sinful lives and they would do whatever they want and they would just offer the sacrifice to the false god to, to atone for, you know, make him happy because he was, he was always mad all the time. And she was a priestess of that false god. She had prophets of the true and living God killed and demanded the assassination of the prophet Elijah. So we won't turn there. But for those of you who like to take notes, this is found in 1 Kings verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 13, and then again in 1 Kings 19.2. So 1 Kings 18.13 and 1 Kings 19.2. So why does she do all this stuff? Well, the easy answer was she was evil worshiping the devil. That's our platitude. That's what we always say. Oh, that person must be evil. That person is sinning. That's why they do it. But let's dive a little bit deeper into her motivation. Let's get a little bit closer into it. She was in a position of power. She was a leader. She had, some say she had more power than the king because of how she spoke and who, what she looked like and different things like that. But her only goal was to keep that power and obtain more. That's what her focus was on. And she viewed Christianity as a threat to that power and decided to take action to prevent it. That was her whole goal. That's the reason she did everything, was because she felt that Christianity, or at that time the, Jew, the, the Jews, were threatening her control or her attempt on that power. So, if you don't know what happened to her, read up on her in First Kings. But I guess you could say she fell from her position of power and had a pretty rough ending. Yes! I love my church. All right, so Nehemiah illustrates good leadership insofar as he was among the people, keeping his eye on God. If you remember the Venn diagram, the two circles, this side, he was self-sacrificing, surrounded by good counsel. Jezebel was just the opposite. I mean, like, polar opposite extreme on the other side. Her poor leadership was self-centered, power-hungry, and she took very little to no counsel. If she did take counsel, it wasn't godly counsel. It wasn't edifying counsel. So now that we have the extremes covered, what about someone right smack dab in the middle? Let's take a look at Saul of Tarsus from the New Testament. So a little backstory about him, if you didn't know. He starts out as a bad leader, if not one of the worst. He kind of had the Jezebel factors going on. He had a little power. He wanted to control it. He thought he was doing right. He had lots of power within the Jewish religion. He could punish anyone he believed to be a heretic. 
He did not have his heart in the right place, nor did he have his eyes on Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was at the time. He even went as far to say that Jesus' teachings were blasphemy. He had the power to not only imprison, but in many cases kill what he defined as heretics. We know them as believers. Our story begins in Acts 7, 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here we see that Saul was at the stoning of Stephen. Now Saul had the power and the authority to stop it. Not only did he allow it to continue, but he also played his part by holding the coats of those stoning Stephen. The story continues on in Acts 9 one through seven. Then Saul, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from <clears throat> and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone round from him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, you will be told what to do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So he asked the, so just to kind of recap what, the, what happened, he asked the high priest for letters to go to Damascus and round up all the people following the way so that he could arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. He is being as good of a leader as he can with his own power and his own thoughts. He's trying his hardest. He's stubborn in his belief that his efforts will rule and that he can make it happen. Sean always says, gives the example of pulling up your bootstraps and pushing forward and just doing what you think is right and trying your hardest. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing in this first part. But watch what happens. As he is on his way, he hears a voice, and he immediately falls to the ground. He asks, you, he asks who are you, Lord? And now, the Lord referenced here is not the Lord that we know. It's not a reference to Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is at this point. The Lord referenced here is a natural utterance of awe and respect. So, he realizes that this person is, is bigger than him, and so he's referencing them as Lord or Master or something like that. And then the voice answers later in the verses. He says, I am Jesus. Saul has humbled himself 
to the awesome power of the Lord. He does not know the next steps, though. He asks, so, so what do I do? In the next few verses, he submits himself to the authority of Jesus. Saul is now demonstrating faith and humility. He is blind and told to go into the city. He waits there for three days, blind, not eating, until Ananias comes. So in verse, so chapter 9, verse 17, he goes on. Ananias went his way and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent days with the disciples at Damascus. So Ananias entered the house, and the first thing he does is call Saul brother. This man, who probably arrested many, if, or was going to, if he didn't already, arrest many of Ananias' friends for believing in the way, he now has to walk in to the house and call brother, embracing him as a brother in Christ. We could go into a whole other Bible study about Ananias' faith, but that was just awesome. Saul's sight was instantly restored. After that, he does what any good leader does. He learned. It says that he sat down, he ate with the disciples, he learned from them, he studied with them, he spent time with them and got to know them. Got to know what it looks like to be a follower of the way or a Christian. Saul had the makings of a great leader. He was persuasive. He had authority. He had a following. He had people that trusted him. So what made him a bad leader? His focus. His attention was not on the true and living king, but on himself. The moment that he realized that God was able to use him in a mighty way for the church, Saul went on to do great things for the kingdom. He started using his other name, Paul, and went on to write much of our New Testament's letters. So we have one more example to look at, and this one's a doozy. It's, of course, Jesus. He's the perfect example in all things, but let's take, an let's take a look at an example of his leadership. So we're going to go to John 13, 15, and 16. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I missed a verse. I'm going to read that again. 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Helps if you read the whole context of the verse. Jesus demonstrates his leadership here. He just finished doing one of the most humbling things and washed his disciples' feet. He got down, 
he went, he got his hands dirty. He grabbed the oil, he rubbed their feet, he cleaned their feet, and he sent a message. And then as soon as he does that, he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Leadership is not about power. Leadership is not about authority. It's about meekness. It's about humbleness. Jesus had the ability to cast himself off the top of the temple and call down angels to save him. But instead, he went to the lowest position of a common criminal and dragged across, across the city while beaten, bloody, up onto the hill of Calvary. He bled and died upon that cross because he was meek. He didn't have to do it, but he did it for us. He did it for you. You want to be a good leader? Look at Christ's example. The verse says, Slaves are not greater than their master, nor the messenger more important than the one who sent it. So I think Bill Perkins said it best, and I'm going to read you a quote from Bill Perkins. How did Jesus lead? He didn't seek honor. He extended it. He didn't crave respect. He gave it. The disciples tried to lead by fighting for honor and refusing to serve. They hadn't yet learned how to find their identity in Christ. Jesus didn't fight for a position of honor because his father had already showered him with honor. Now he honored his disciples. By washing the disciples' feet, Jesus lifted the disciples above himself. If the Messiah would stoop to serve them, it would speak volumes about their worth. I imagine after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the disciples often reflected on this amazing demonstration of respect. Without a doubt, knowing that Jesus loved and respected them fueled their ability and desire to dedicate their lives to carrying out their mission. So I'm going to leave you with this final thought. Are you washing people's feet? Following the example of Christ and humbly serving those around you? Every Christian, man or woman, is called to be a leader to show the example of Christ in our marriages, in our jobs, with our kids, wherever God has us. I want you to be a leader. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your message, Lord, that resonated through, through your church and through your people. I pray, Lord, that it can be a message just planted in our hearts that we can be a leader in our, in our families and in our marriages and that we can just be, keep our eyes focused on you, keep our hearts on you, and be the examples that you ask us to be. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings and gifts that you have given us, and we ask that we will not take them for granted, Lord. We don't take our country for granted. We don't take our families for granted or, the, or our lives or our jobs or anything, but we, we be an actor, we be a person willing to serve and glorify you. So we just, we thank you, Lord. We ask this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.